Welcome to the Hardware Asylum Podcast. This episode, we talk about Intel's new high-end desktop platform, the X299. I'm your host, Dan Garcia. With me today, I have Darren McCain. Here at Computex, I know Intel introduced the new 2066 processor socket type, and with it, a new chipset, the X299, and it got me thinking, since I saw a couple of new motherboards on the bench here at the labs, that maybe I should be taking a closer look at upgrading from my processor. To get me thinking about that, I thought maybe I'd let you tell me what makes that X299 and the 2066 socket so exciting. What's good about it? What's it bring? It brings with it a lot of technological enhancements per what Intel normally packs into their chipset releases. On the surface, though, they're basically the same as the X299. We have 24 lanes of PCI Express. It supports PCI Express 3. It comes with USB 3 on board. It has also some rollback for USB 2. supports RAID in this chipset configuration. But it also supports Intel Optane memory and has um, a little bit more that they can do with the HD audio and some virtualization. And all that sounds really good to me, but I don't see a whole lot of differences here that would justify a new motherboard purchase. So it must be the processor. Now I got to ask before we start too much on the processor, I know we used to talk about the tick-tock cycles of processors. Yes. And that I know isn't as true as it used to be. Is this still part of that tick-tock cycle since it's only a slight upgrade from the X2070 it sounds like? Not so much. They the tick-tock cycle was they release a new generation of technology and then they come back later and then refine it, either make it on a smaller process or they would just kind of increase the speed and stuff like that. They've kind of gotten away from that because now Intel is moving all of their new technology to the data center. So instead of the desktop users getting the latest and greatest Optane memory sort of situation, that's going to go to the data center and then we will get kind of the table scraps, so to speak. (laughs) Okay. So what they changed though with the 2066 was pretty much how the high-end desktop segment was divided. So we have at the bottom we have the Core i7-7740X. And these are all X-series processors, by the way. Okay, so does X mean that they're unlocked like the Ks used to, or what does that mean? The X and K are both overclockable and unlocked. Okay. But the X-series is pretty much limited to the high-end desktop where the K-series is for the mainstream desktop. Okay. So at the bottom, we have a 7740X. On the surface, it looks a lot like a 7700K from the KB Lake. We got four cores, eight threads, which basically hyper-threading, comes with dual-channel memory instead of quad-channel like we would normally expect on an X99 system. And it comes with uh, considerably less PCI Express lanes at only 16. Yeah, well, that seems like a step back from the 7700, at least on paper. On paper, yes. Um, The processor itself puts out 140 watts of power, whereas the KB Lake is like 95, I believe. Okay. So it puts out more power, uh, more heat, I should say, 
but it brings that sort of processor platform and also overclocking because these are the chips during Computex that would hit about seven gigahertz. Ooh, seven. That's impressive. Yeah. But it brings that processor package and a lower price point to the high-end desktop market. Okay. I mean, the, this processor itself, um, as of this recording, is around $360. Well, that's a lot cheaper than you'd pay normally to get into an i7 today. And then, of course, from there, it steps up into the six-core and eight-core versions, which is what we would normally see in the X99 or the current X99. And those ones start at, again, $370. And then they hop up to around $600 for the eight-core one. And of course, that's hyper-threading, so you get 8 and 16. But you get an increase in PCI Express lanes up to 28, where on the X99, we had the low-end processor was a 28-lane processor. Interesting. Now, I see that that's not even the tip of the iceberg here. Well, maybe a good middle section because there are more. There are more. We have the Core i9. And this is something I joked about on the website in one of my news postings about how Intel publicly stated, stop making Core i9 happen because it's not going to happen. Right, okay. And this was back in, you know, was it the X58 days when people were speculating that they were going to do a Core i9 that had a whole bunch of cores in it, but that never happened. Well, now they brought in the Core i9. We have the 7900X, which is a 10-core, 20-thread processor, which has the full 44 lanes of PCI Express, which is what we would normally see in X99 for the high end. Right. And uh, what is it, a boost 3.0 at 4.5 gigahertz. And that doesn't even count overclocking potential. That doesn't count overclocking. But when you get into the higher core counts, those are based off of the Skylake core. And as we know, Skylake wasn't a very strong overclocker. You could get some chips that would do really well. But when you add more cores, you have synchronization problems. And when things get fast, the processor tends to not like that so much. Whereas with the KB Lake, we only have four cores, so we can really push it. You can stabilize the, the transfers. So maybe from an overclocking standpoint, well, especially since most of the benchmarks aren't multi-threaded, it would be better to be looking at perhaps the 7740X? That is the way that I went. In fact, I actually have two 2066 processors. I bought myself a 7740X with the sole intention of doing some LN2 overclocking with it. And then I got myself onto the other end at the Core i9 for a 7900X, mostly motherboard reviews and um, just kind of generally playing around. Well, that sounds like a powerhouse, but your little chart here that we'll link to in the show notes mm-hmm. shows me that there's even more to come. Yeah, there is a upper end Core i9 7920X, which is a 12 core, 24 thread CPU based off of the same Skylake core. They just added some more... Uh, course to it. Same PCI Express lanes, a much higher price point though. And uh, of course, when my chart was released, that was to be determined. They expected the launch to be in August and they're still unavailable. But uh, that particular CPU, they estimated it to be $1,200. Holy cow. Now that's more like the extreme end of Intel processing prices that (laughs) we see today. Yes. Uh, Even the 7900Xs, they're $99.99. Got to keep it under a thousand, right? Nine ninety nine ninety nine. Yeah, that's the nines. So many nines there, but yeah, you got to keep it under a thousand. And of course, when you add shipping on top of that, and blah blah blah. But still, not very inexpensive. However, it's following the trend for all of the Intel high-end desktop CPUs. Even back in the X fifty eight days with the Gulf Towns, those were a thousand dollars. Thirty nine sixty Xs in the X seventy nine. 
era, those were $1,000. It seemed like $1,000 was always the pinnacle, and it seemed to be the point where Intel didn't want to stray past. Interesting, but I can see why people are starting to get excited about those new AMD processors, because the price points are so much lower. Mm -hmm. Well, you have the, the Ryzen's, which have more cores, but per core, the, the performance is around the Core i5 in the desktop realm. Then, of course, when you go up to Threadripper, you're basically taking four of the Ryzen cores, putting them onto one big CPU. You get a lot of threads, which is great for multi-threaded applications, um, you know, compiling audio, video, that sort of stuff, workstation stuff. It's great, but in terms of like gaming performance the jury is still out on whether or not it really beats a lot of the Intel systems just because of the way that the games are written. They're not written for 30 threads. They're written for four. Well, that's a trend that I hope that we see change because so many of the new processors have that multi-thread capability Mm -hmm. and lots of threads. So why not take advantage of them? I know some of the software is headed that direction, especially the workstation-specific software, things like Photoshop, for example. You know, what's not going to the cloud is definitely going multi-thread or some combination of the two. Right. And while the Intel CPUs have always been the faster per core per instruction, there is one drawback to the new generation of 2066 processors and is that they are no longer soldered. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, remember when I delitted that 7700K and I got that cool tool from Rocket Cool. Yes, and a great video. Check it out. I was able to do that because they used thermal compound between the chip and the heat spreader and basically glued the heat spreader to the top of the CPU, you know, the the package. Before that and Sandy Bridge, they were soldered. So instead of using thermal paste, they use a a metal compound that glued the heat spreader to the chip or the silicon. That sounds pretty permanent. It is. It's super permanent. It also allows the most efficient thermal transfer between the CPU and the heat spreader so that the CPUs would run a lot cooler. Okay, so maybe you don't need to take it apart at all. I get it. Well, it, well if you take it apart, you basically destroy it. With Ivy Bridge going forward, they started using thermal compound, and a lot of overclockers really hated that. A lot of mainstream users hated that because it increased the core temperature, which increased the fan speed and made their systems louder. On the high-end desktop line of things, X79 and X99 eras, those were still soldered because they were the higher-end CPU. That was the way they liked it. Well, with LGA 2066, went with uh, thermal compound instead of soldering them. So we have the same problem that we had with the 7700K KB lakes. The CPUs kind of heat up and they can't dissipate that heat because of that thermal compound. That seems like a bit of a backward step and an odd choice. Yeah, it's a lot of people are kind of scratching their heads thinking, well, we're spending $1,000 on a CPU. Why didn't you give us the best thermal connectivity there? Maybe they expect people to delid these things. I mean, if you're spending that kind of money, maybe you're just a little bit more serious about your cooling solution and they want to give you that option? That's a logical step. However, it also voids the warranty. Oh, yeah, and that's yeah. no good. And of course, you know, then it depends on what thermal compound to use. A lot of people are going with liquid metal because it has better thermal characteristics. But if you put too much of it on there, then it can leak out and might short out the CPU. If you go with a regular thermal compound, like I use the GLID stuff on the 7700K because of liquid nitrogen, you don't get the same efficiencies. It doesn't go down 20 degrees. It only goes down 10 degrees. Still a lot better than the stock stuff, but it's not the performance isn't there. So there is give and take, that's for sure. 
So you picked up the 7740X and the i9-7900X. Now looking at your chart here, I'm seeing an interesting trend in the base clocks where it looks like we actually start, if you look at the 7740, with a pretty good base clock and a nice turbo boost. But when you get up into the i9s, those numbers are lower. Yeah, so you have a lower base clock which is normal for the high-end, high-core count Intel CPUs. Well, they lower the operating frequency just to keep within that thermal 140-watt TDP range. But even the turbo boost numbers are lower. Well, I guess I should ask, what really is the difference between turbo boost 2 and turbo boost 3? Because I see that only comes in on the 7820 and the 7900. Yeah, and, you know, honestly, I'm not sure. And I know this is a dangerous thing for a person like me to say, but it's 200 megahertz. It's not that much. I mean, I'm sure that there's something to do with scaling and how much power it uses at those different frequencies. But if you look at the top frequency, we got 4.5 gigahertz on the 7900X. We also hit 4.5 gigahertz on the 7740X. So in theory, unless you're multi-threading, they basically will have the same performance profile. Except for the 7740X is easier to overclock. It's easier to overclock. It doesn't admit as much power. And on the flip side of it, you don't get as many PCI Express lanes. But if you run a one video card, it doesn't matter. Right. And you only get dual channel memory. So if oh, you're, well, there's a bigger negative there. That's, that's the biggest negative that I saw so far. The sweet spot is to go up to the 7800X, which is that next step above, which is like a $400 CPU. You get eight cores, 12 threads, quad channel memory, but you don't get that overclocking headroom because we're now in Skylake era instead of KB Lake. Very interesting. It almost makes me feel like the KB Lake, Skylake thing is sort of a difference between an enthusiast processor and more of an enterprise level processor because you are trading that higher end overclocking potential for more threads and more cores. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, enough about the theory at least, but since you have these two processors, have you had a chance to get them on the bench yet? I have, and I've tested them on an EVGA X299 micro motherboard. That was the first one that I got in for review, and it's the first one that made it to the test bench. And I must say that having both CPUs on that board has really opened my eyes to how motherboard makers are changing their designs basically for the different boards for the different CPUs because we have a variety of things to take care of including memory channels and also the the amount of PCI Express lanes that you have available and that's something that we explored in the multi-GPU index on the reviews where with x99 I had the full 40 lane CPU and then I had the 28 lane CPU and they would be color coded differently because the lanes would change based off of what CPU was installed. It seems with 2066, it has kind of exploded, so to speak. So there are more ways to do it, or is it motherboard or manufacturer-specific? It's kind of manufacturer-specific is what I've seen. So on that micro board, that's a micro ATX motherboard, so you know it only has four expansion slots. Each one of those slots, if you have the 7740X installed, every one of those slots is only eight lanes of PCI Express. Some of them come from the chipset. Some of them come from the CPU. But basically two of them are there for video card bandwidth that comes from the CPU. And those are both already split into eight lanes each. And so you don't have a single 16 lane at all. That just seemed odd to me to have... Oh, it does seem odd. Yeah, so you have that 7740X 
with 16 lanes, you could dedicate all of that to a single video card, which is really what you would probably use in that particular situation. But for this particular design, they split it across all of them. So they all have eight. It's really weird. But then when you put in the 7900X, magically everything is 16 lanes. Oh, well, that seems like a worthwhile step up. Obviously, you get um, a performance boost by changing the CPU, but you also get an architecture boost in terms of the way that the motherboard is designed. And that kind of makes sense because when you normally split the lanes, you have to have these little switches on the motherboard. And those are those little blocks that you see under the PCI Express slots. Right. It used to be those little reversible card thingies. Yeah. Well, these ones are actually like digital switches, so they can turn lanes on and off depending on what sort of a signal they're getting. Well, now with uh, that EVGA board, they basically hard locked it. They split them directly from the CPU, depending on what CPU is installed. So if you have a 28 lane, then it splits them differently than if you have a 44 lane. That certainly complicates the buying picture because now you have to pay a little bit more attention to what your motherboard is going to do with the processor you got, or at least what your lane count is, which is not something I normally look at when I'm looking at price for performance. Nope. It also impacts M.2 compatibility and stuff like that. But a lot of the M.2 connectivity comes out of the Southbridge, which you get 24 lanes of PCI Express there. But they get divided up to different things like uh, M.2, also the onboard SATA controller, audio, Wi-Fi, stuff like that. Okay, so we've talked about different processors and a little bit about price points. I think it's time to talk about some of these motherboards that got us started in the first place. Yeah, so on the, well, this is radio, so I'm pointing again, right? <laughs> On the right here, we have the Asus Z270 Maximus 9 Apex. All right, I'm going to pull this bad boy out. Okay. So and this. Take it home with me. I mean, and uh, show it off a little bit here. Now, both of these boards look very similar on the surface as I'm pulling this out of the packaging here. Yeah. So this is a, um, I'll link to the review to this motherboard in the show notes, but this is an overclocker. It's an overclocking motherboard. It's, uh, can't get any more simpler than that we only have uh two memory sockets in here so that it will support the 42 uh what is it the 4266 megahertz ddr4 memory now hold on hold on but there's this other memory slot right next to it it says no oh, dim two yeah dim two is that a that's not that uh that's that not octane memory is it it's kind of like octane memory um octane is the intel sort of super fast stuff the dim two is your M.2 riser. Oh, oh, that must be what this funky little riser card is that I see now. Mm -hmm. ROG DIMM2. Okay, so this is new to me. When did they start doing this? Well, with this board, pretty much. <laughs> okay, so I can't help but notice now that I'm looking that there aren't any M.2 slots on the board, so this must take the place of them. It does, and it's pretty cool because it's a removable card, so you can pull the card out, install your drives... And then click it in place, just like any sort of a um, memory card. Which I'm doing right now, just because I can. Yeah. Get in there, you little bugger. Hmm. Now, okay. Yeah. Yeah, just like memory. So it's interesting. I can see this having some fun advantages. One, you don't have to, you know, put those on the board, taking up space. But also, it looks like it would have a great opportunity to add aftermarket M.2 cooling solutions. Yes, you can put some 
big old heat sinks on there, which is something that a lot of people have been doing with M.2s, especially the high performance ones. Interesting. Now this one supports two, but I could see that easily going up because the sky's the limit, or at least how far you want your riser to go, right? Uh, well, it's limited by how many PCI Express lanes you got. Oh, well, that makes sense. But after all, we can go up to 44 now, right? Uh, yeah, but not all 44 for your, well, in any event, it doesn't matter. We have a lot. And the future is bright, right? Because we add more lanes, we could add more PCIs, and eventually you could have a huge array, to steal the RAID term, mm -hmm. of M.2 drives. Exactly. Well, storage is the it's a bottleneck these days, right? Exactly. All right, so what else we got on this thing? On the board, uh, obviously, you have the ROG sort of aura LED lights everywhere, which is kind of cool. And they're off by default, which is one thing I love about this board. Nice. Thing that impresses me the most about this board, though, is the fact that the edges are not square. I see that, which is kind of cool. And the way that the stripes are on the board kind of give it a high-tech look, too. I'll, you know, at first glance, I thought, wow, is that a carbon fiber or what is that? But yeah. it's just decoration. Just decoration. And then, of course, that since this is an overclocking motherboard, we have lots of controls over here. So we have our PCI Express lane disable switches. We have our debug LED. We have our slow mode switches for LN2. We have an LN2 mode, which allows you to feed more voltage into the CPU and get past that nasty cold bug. Right. Onboard power reset, CMOS reset, memory OK buttons. There's a lot on this board. There's a lot happening. And it's basically the pinnacle of what you can do with the Z270 stuff. I see that. And I want to call to attention here what I think are onboard water controls for water cooling. Is that what I'm seeing? A water pump and water flow? Yeah, they have dedicated headers for your pumps. Nice. So if you're running your all-in-one, you can drop it into there. If you're running a um, a D5 with a regular fan header, you can plug it into that. And the idea is that you get full voltage off of that. So it's not being controlled by the fan controller. Well, I, I think that's a huge step in the right direction. When you get to this level, water cooling at least an all-in-one solution is almost a foregone conclusion. Yeah, it's, well, they have a version of this board that comes with a water block for the VRM and CPU. Nice. It's pretty sweet. I do like the looks of this. All right, well, let's look at its big brother. Is this the newer version of this, I'm guessing, because they look so similar? Yeah, this is the, what is it, the X299 Rampage 9 Apex. I think it's the 9 Apex. Oh, geez. But basically, this is the Apex in the X299 chipset. Oh, wow. Now, there are a lot of very visual differences about this, but a lot of similarities, too. I'm immediately drawn to the way they've changed the slots here, of course, and the huge, you know, heatsink difference. But this is really interesting to me. And this, again, is another asymmetrical board, so it has some nice, fun cutouts on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they played with the cutouts down there where the uh, SATA sockets are, where they have them not straight, but at an angle because the board cuts in right there, which is actually really cool. Yeah, that is awesome, actually. And it's the first time I've ever seen anything like that on a board. So it's very cool. And I see uh, a much larger, like I said, cooling solution with the heat pipes. What else is different? Well, we have two uh, DIMM2 slots. Oh, oh, I see that. So we can put our four uh, M.2 drives in there. We have the same overclocking controls in the upper section of the motherboard, along with the onboard buttons, which is kind of a standard for ROG, which is pretty awesome. Video card slots for PCI Express. These all have the metal surrounds to reinforce them. We got standard four, just like on any sort of an ROG board of this generation. Oh. Well, in even previous generations. Drop into a single... PCIe 1X, though. That's interesting. Yeah, well, you know, 
people like these things. And this was one that will come off of the South Bridge. You can do your Wi-Fi off of this or like a DAC, like the um, Sound Blaster XAE-5. Yeah, great card, by the way. Look for that review coming. Uh, oh, and the, the one thing, this is kind of cool on the back. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, Bil- wow, yeah. There's Bil- a lot more going on. All right, so we're looking at the I.O. section, and we have built-in Wi-Fi. Yeah, two antennas. Two antennas. We have also the Type-C connector for USB yeah. 3.1. Nice. Good to see that coming on. Oh, you got outside power reset buttons, which is cool. I didn't notice that on the others. Yeah, it's on the other board, too. Oh, okay. I see it. Uh, anymore, you don't have to use that unless things go catastrophically wrong, which is uh, saying a lot for the way that the UEFIs are written these days. Well, that's true, too. And... Oh, we're back to single LAN cards, I see, which is not a big surprise because most people only use one. Yeah, the the whole day of uh, shotgunning the network connections has kind of gone away. Ah, that's too bad because that was always kind of fun to do. But to be fair, I never used it either. No, well, you know, if you think about it, it's like, okay, shotgun to the switch. The switch goes to your DSL. DSL goes over a really slow connection out to the web. It does you no good. Someday when we all have fiber. I also notice, and... I don't know how I didn't notice this before, probably because I don't usually see them side by side, but the socket is much larger. Well, obviously, the socket on the Z270 is your 1150X mm-hmm. socket. This socket here is going to be your 2066, which has the same um, mounting sockets for heat sinks. So you can use any heat sink water block off of your LGA 2011s. That's nice. And on here, you screw directly in. This one doesn't use the the fancy um, heatsink mounting. Like, for instance, on the X79, we had the bracket where the screw holes went through the back of the motherboard. Oh, yeah. The board was actually reinforcing the socket even more. Now it's um, surface mount, so it's on top. Yeah, but that's also, since you've turned that over, you know, you have quite a bit of back plates on it, which is kind of a newer thing for motherboards. Oh, yeah, there's lots of back plates everywhere. Was it X79, X99, and probably with X299, the uh, VRMs are going to get really, really hot because they have a lot of power going through them, and they aren't as large as what you would find on a Z270. So you can't distribute that power across a bunch of different phases. So there's a lot of heat going on here. It doesn't surprise me that we have a heat sink on the back. Yeah, that's very interesting. I can't get over the asymmetrical design, though. I'm so happy to see that that's going away because in the long run, that gives us a lot more opportunities for customization. Mm-hmm. And I could easily see them putting in cooling gaps and that sort of thing too in the future where your board has holes in the middle where it's appropriate to do so. And I get that that's a little harder to run the PCMs, but it's still very cool. The thing that I was always amazed with was the reason that motherboards are square was to maximize, obviously, the board itself and be able to use as many traces as as many locations as possible. And it also makes the manufacturing of the boards a lot quicker. If you get little cutouts like this, you have to make a special die just to cut that piece out when it's in the factory. So there's a lot of extra R&D that went in to build this board. And it's really kind of taken off because I've seen some of the prototype shops of the X299 Dark from EVGA. Right. It's set up almost exactly like this Apex where we have four memory sockets so we can run high-speed memory. And it had the cutouts on the side. So it looks a lot like the original Apex. Very nice. Well, you know, they do get made in a lot of the same factories, I guess. So it makes sense that they could build a custom for everybody. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm looking at this incredible Apex, and I think Apex is an appropriate name for these because I know that this is one of the motherboards that's being used right now to set a lot of overclocking records, at least out on the 
on the web. Mm-hmm. So it leads me to ask questions about these different processors again. We've talked about kind of where the processors fit in the grand scheme of things as sort of a good, better, best. But in the motherboard hierarchy of things, where do these different motherboards sit, the Apex and the and the older uh, Maximus? So the Maximus is basically the 11.5X. That was the name that they gave to that processor generation. And then when we get to the Rampage, then we have the high-end desktop stuff. And that's kind of the way that it's always been divided with Asus. In some of the past motherboards, like the X58s and whatnot, we had Maximus and Rampage in the same series. But it was just how they divided things up. We have an entire line of X299 motherboards from Asus. The high end would be the Apex, and then we also have like a Rampage Extreme and some of the lower end ones. And they're designed for different purposes, where the Apex is designed for the high end desktop overclocker enthusiast like ourselves. And then we have some of the lower end ones where we have four memory sockets in each bank. So a total of eight, but it's designed mostly as a gaming motherboard. So it focuses more on audio features, LAN features, expandability for video cards, and also memory. So you can build up your memory and be able to support higher density modules at a slower speed. Whereas the overclockers want to have lower density at a higher speed. I do want to point out, though, that despite the fact that this Apex is really, really a premium cutting-edge overclocking motherboard, that it's not a bare-bones motherboard like we've seen in the past. It really is still a full-featured motherboard with the onboard high-end audio, you know, the onboard multiple storage solutions. I mean, we have have custom caps on here for the audio solution, so they spent a lot of extra time and effort to make sure that this board really was the best of the best in giving overclockers what they want, but then also really catering to the mainstream that is going to buy this board, maybe not use it for overclocking, but want to have it just to have it. So paint me a picture. If I'm out buying a new processor and a new Rampage Apex motherboard, what else would I have to have that's platform specific? Is it? Well, the the one thing that a lot of people don't realize when you are going with the 2066 processor platform, it depends on what core you're after. So if you have the KB Lake, you can run high-end, high-speed, I should say, uh, memory modules up to 4133 megahertz. But when you get into the Skylake generation, I believe the limit was like 3600 megahertz. Anything faster than that, then the memory controller can't keep up. Some of that is the fact that it has the uh, the quad-channel memory controller built into it, but the other part is the fact that it's Skylake-based, and Skylake didn't support the high-speed RAMs like KB Lake did. Well, I think that at least that's another compelling reason to upgrade and to open your wallets for what could be a very spendy bump to get to the very cutting edge of the enthusiast hardware that we love to see around here. So we've looked at two very different platforms and the two motherboards that support them. Very compelling arguments, if for different reasons, to upgrade. I'd encourage you to check back as we get these on the bench and see how they really do perform with those processors and see just exactly how good they are. More to come. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes on hardwareasylum.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Hardware Asylum by subscribing to our RSS. Follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2017. Thanks for listening.